I'm Liam Printer and this is The Motivated Classroom. Hello everyone, good morning and welcome to the Motivated Classroom. Bienvenue, Falcha, bienvenidos. I'm really excited here today to have in front of me the, the wonderful Darren Leslie, who is all the way over in Scotland and he's going to be talking to me. He is a host of a fantastic podcast called Becoming Educated and I'm going to introduce him a little bit more in a minute. We're going to talk about teaching and learning, research and why we are doing this whole podcast thing. What's the point of it? But of course, it is the Motivated Classroom podcast and since many of us are in our houses working again. The word for today is ancha and in Irish ancha means the house. Some people pronounce it chach or tea but I would say ancha and that means the house. So there you go, there's your Irish for today. So without further ado let's get straight into chatting over to Darren. I'm going to try my best to introduce Darren before he says hello and hopefully I'll make a good job of this. This is always my hardest thing to do on the podcast I think. So Darren, I actually came across Darren from listening to his podcast called Becoming Educated and it was something that I got into listening during lockdown actually in March 2020 and I just loved the array of guests that he's had. He's had so many fantastic guests and authors of education material and books and websites and blogs and researchers. It's a really brilliant podcast so please go and check it out. So Darren is a teaching and learning research lead at Bell Baxter High School in Fife in Scotland where one of my very close friends comes from actually, really small world. Since January of this year he has been teaching at that school and nine years in total as a PhD teacher, so physical education. His podcast, Become an Educated, has been out since about January 2020 and he is well into his 70s in terms of episode, not in terms of age. So Darren, is uh, really, really lovely to see you and lovely to have you here on the podcast. Thanks for joining me today. Well, thanks for inviting me on, Liam. It's an absolute pleasure and thanks you for uh, clarifying my, my age. I, mean, <laughs> I think I'm now about halfway to 70 actually, so I'm, I'm nearly there. So this is something Darren and I have, have spoken about. We wanted to do a podcast collaboration. So this episode is going to be a little bit different. It's not necessarily Darren interviewing me or me interviewing Darren. We're just going to have a chat about podcasts and about education and everything. So Darren, I'm going to pass over to you now and get your podcast started. Certainly. Thank you, Liam. Well, today um, on Becoming Educated, I'm collaborating with Dr. Liam Printer of the Motivated Classroom. Dr. Printer is a Doctor of Education in Language Teaching and Motivation. He is the Teaching and Learning Research Lead at the International School of Lausanne. Correct me if I've... I've, I've if I've said that incorrectly. Perfect pronunciation, perfect. Lovely. He's also a teacher there and also the basketball coach, which I'm extremely fascinated to to hear about. Correct. And Liam, as I've said, is the host of the wonderful podcast, The Motivated Classroom. And I'm delighted that he can join with me today so we can discuss teaching, learning, research and everything in between. So Darren, I guess the first thing I'm going to chat to you about, and we spoke about this in advance, but I do think it's important for the listeners to to kind of learn about this, is why did you get into this podcast thing? Where, where did it come from and why did you start it off? Because you, you did start it before the pandemic started, right? So, I mean, where did it come from and why get into it? I was kind of at a crossroads in my, my career where I was kind of doing a lot of things and not sh- understanding fully where they came from. And little did I know that people had been writing and researching education for a long, long time. So I stumbled upon a few books, the first one being Making Every Lesson Count. And I just started going through the references and reading more and reading more and reading more. And I just thought one day, I was listening to some some podcasts. I listened to a lot of history podcasts and golf podcasts and thought, you know, I could do that. And I contacted <laughs> one of the hosts, a, a, a chap from a, a company called Me and My Golf, um, and I asked him, how, how do you do that? And he kindly gave me a bit of his time and said, this is how you do it. I thought, oh, that, that, that doesn't sound too hard. So I just decided I would contact some of the authors of the books I was reading and 
Thankfully, they all said yes, and I threw together some questions and recorded a podcast. And it also kind of coincided with TEDx Clackmannanshire, the school I was working at at the time, hosted a, a TEDx event, and I got a number of my first guests from there. I kind of got some um, business cards made up and was running around the foyer, handing <laughs> them a business card, come and chat to me. Brilliant. And then it's just got kind of grown arms, arms and legs from there. I didn't realise that kind of... Coming up to nearly two years on, I'd, I'd still be doing it, but I really, really enjoy it. I'd like to throw that back to you, if I, if I can, Liam, because you host a wonderful podcast called The Motivated Classroom. How did you come to podcast and, and, and what is your podcast about? Yeah, thanks very much, Darren. Yeah, it's like it's really interesting to hear how you got into it. I guess I started off, I finished my doctorate in education in March uh, 2021, but I was coming towards the end of it, uh, towards the summer of 2020. So I more or less was finishing up the thesis. It was getting handed in. I felt like it was coming to a, a close and I'd been presenting at certain conferences and I, I've written a few publications but really it was kind of bothering me that I'd spent six years reading about stuff and looking into things but I wasn't really nobody really knew about any of the stuff and when I publish anything in a research journal there's just that tiny amount of people who get access to it so it was actually a friend of mine who just said to me why don't you do a podcast and just talk about your research and just do like 10 or 15 episodes and then they're out there and people can listen to it and you know maybe just do it chapter by chapter and I thought wow that's actually that's actually a really good idea I hadn't thought about that before and you know, I used to have a radio show back in the day in when I was at University of Limerick with uh, a guy called Chris Callahan. We had a, a little radio show called The Kitchen Sink because it covered absolutely everything. The, the Kitchen Sink was thrown in. So we, uh, I loved it. I really enjoyed the kind of the radio aspect and the music and talking to listeners. So I just thought, yeah, why not? I'll put this together. I called it The Motivated Classroom because my research was all to do with motivation and language teaching and language learning. And for me, I just thought that that the most interesting thing was to try and get that out there to people. So, yeah, I think that's where it started from. And now, you know, I'm kind of 65, 70 episodes in a bit like yourself. And I don't know where it kind of went. It went from 15 to 20 and then a few more people wanted to talk on it. And I spoke to other people just like yourself. I'd have contacts on on Twitter and, you know, lots of really cool language teachers that are doing really exciting stuff. And I just thought, why not get them people on to speak? And then someone would email me with a question and I'd say, oh, yeah, that's actually a great idea for a topic. It's a little bit of a mix. It's slightly different to yours, I would say, that at the beginning, my goal was just to share about my research and then gradually it just became talking about my classroom and now I've had maybe 15 or 20 guests, I suppose, in total from a mainly focusing on language teaching, but definitely with that motivation background. So yeah, hopefully there's lots of people listening to this right now and nodding their heads <laughs> saying we've been with you on the on the journey. So Darren, I'm going to throw the next question over to you then. This is something that we both are involved in very similar work. We're both doing teaching and learning research lead type work in our schools and also both of us are quite new at this role because I've only been in my role this year as well and I know you started yours in 2021 as well so I'm only a few months into mine you're probably about six or seven months ahead of me but what does being a teaching and research lead look like in your school and in your context what kind of what's involved in your day-to-day with that? Thank you for the question quite a bit actually um, I've got my finger in, in, in many pies <laughs> and the bulk of it is that I, I, I kind of help teachers improve in various ways. So I organise and deliver our, our, what we call a professional learning programme. And in that we have three streams, of, three streams of professional learning. I have breakfast CPD where we just talk about something in teaching. We gather around, have a croissant and a cup of tea. Uh, I have a 15-minute forum, which I, which I kind of took the idea from um, Sean Allison. He wrote a great book called uh, Perfect Teacher-Led CPD, I think it was called. Um, really wonderful, nice small book. Took it from there where 
a teacher presents five minutes of what they're doing in their classroom on. The last one was on use, how they use their visualizer. So they present five minutes and then the rest of us ask them questions, share practice and so on. And I find them very beneficial. And the last thing being twilight, 30 minute instructional input, um, mainly delivered by myself on, on various aspects. Um, for example, the next one is on using an IWU approach to, to modeling and, and kind, of, kind of drilling down into the research behind that, why it works and, and how it could be implemented in various various settings. I also work with, with faculties based on their improvement plan, go on and, and help help them kind of with an area of teaching. I kind of distill the research for them so they don't have to. So I break that down and say, this is what the research says, this is what you could do. And then with their practice-based evidence that they've got, combined with the research I've given them, they can decide which way they go. And I also do a little bit of instructional coaching um, with teachers um, where they invite me into their classroom and then we pick an a, a action step based on what I've seen and then we practice that outside of the classroom and then they go back into the classroom and then we we kind of monitor progress from that and, and a couple of the teachers I've been working with they're, they're really developing their teaching practice and the students are, are beginning to really benefit from that improvement. Do you still teach as well alongside of that or is that entirely yes. your job Are you still teach in PE? So how, what's the kind of breakup of that? You know, how, what percentage of your time is the teaching and learning research? The teaching and learning research is about a third of my time. Right, because gotcha. Because I teach a little bit of PE, but I also teach some mathematics. I'm using Engelman's corrective mathematics program with some students. So I, I kind of brought this to the head teacher and they said, well, why don't you give it a go? <laughs> so I'm giving that a go. I was trained by the wonderful DI South Hub, um, Kevin Surrey and Susie Wybrow in the summer there and they trained me up and then here I am teaching some Fantastic. mathematics, which is really good. That's really interesting because it seems like it's a very similar approach to what I've got. I think my officially it's 20% of my role, but I also have 10% of my role is what's called coordination of the approaches to learning skills. So it's very similar, the amount of time release that we've both got. And it's really interesting hearing you talking about the way it works. I love that idea of the of the breakfast CPD club. I was just making some some notes right there, thinking about things I could bring in for next year. So this is a new role in my school as well. And it's something that we're just kind of figuring out and deciding what will work. And actually, I listened to Jade Pierce talk about the way she organised professional development in her school internally. And I took huge amounts from what she said. She's absolutely fantastic. She's got so many wonderful ideas and she's really, really genuine generous with her resources and her time, which is fantastic. And speaking of being very generous with her time, Jade is going to be on the Motivated Classroom podcast very soon, talking about professional development, internal learning programmes, how we can all become better teachers and the way we can do that internally in our schools. So a really great episode you do not want to miss. When I was listening to Jade, I heard her talk about her three specific teaching and learning goals. And that actually led in really closely to what we were doing because we had just gone through a self-study, a self-accreditation. When you go through the accrediting bodies in, the, in international schools, you start by doing a big self-study where all the teachers and all the staff are involved in different parts of the school. Some are looking at the admin, some are looking at teaching and learning. And I was in the teaching and learning group. And at the end of that, we had these kind of three core priorities that we wanted to work on. And so they led into kind of our three areas 
of teaching and learning that we wanted to focus on. So the first one for us was essentially helping all learners to access the curriculum. So we were looking at universal design for learning and making sure that we were differentiating in a way that comes from a research base. The second one was trying to get students away from overly focusing on grades and to learn about the process of learning. And so that, of course, was intrinsic motivation and fit perfectly with what I'd been reading around. And then the last one was to do with memory and retrieval. So we focused on retrieval practice and we've been using a lot of Kate Jones's materials and her book, for example. And the way we've structured it in our school now is we have five times through the year when the teachers are reading around one of these areas and I provide them with the research papers or the book chapters and I kind of organise it, they go off and read it. And then every roughly five or six weeks, we have a staff meeting that's dedicated to sharing what we found in our reading in our little groups. And then the next meeting in our departments is blocked off so that we can bring it down to a department level. And that, I think, has been really, really effective. And I got that from Jade. And I remember her talking about this, about the importance of making sure it becomes subject focused. So it's fine just to read about intrinsic motivation in general. But it's when I start to talk to other language teachers in my department, we can really get down to the nuts and bolts of what that looks like in our classroom. And so it's worked really well. I think the teachers have been really into it. They've obviously, which is great, we have critical thinkers as teachers. So of course, some teachers are reading some of the research going, ah, oh, do you know what? Not sure I agree with this. And that's fine. That's absolutely fine. That brings about those great conversations. I'm not expecting every teacher to agree with everything that they're reading. That would, there'd be no point in that. But what's happening is we're having those, just like you said, your croissant and coffee conversations. They're kind of naturally spurring up at the coffee machine. Someone will say, oh yeah, you know that thing he said, about the motivation well I tried that out and this thing happened and that was we were trying to get those conversations going so it's been quite exciting hearing it happen you know it certainly sounds exciting especially the amount of time that you're giving to it in terms of the time for reading and the time and the staff because as Jay said the subject specificity is so so important and it's something that I'm about listening to you there I'm taking notes how can I get better yeah. at doing that so I'd like to ask you then Liam why do you why do you want to be a, a teaching and learning research leader what motivates you to, to lead teaching and learning in your context yeah that's a brilliant brilliant question I, I think for me it is to do with wanting teaching to improve across the board so that more learners are having access to exciting lessons and becoming lifelong learners and I know that's kind of reaching for the stars and but I really do believe that if we change what goes on inside our classrooms and use the huge amount of evidence that we have now, we can improve the learning outcomes for our students and the amount that they're motivated to continue with their learning. I guess I always think about it in that I understand for people listening to this that they might think, but hold on a minute, teaching is a craft. You know, how do you research it? And every classroom is different. Every context is different. And and I really understand when people say that. However, I don't think that we can just continue to ignore the huge amounts of evidence evidence that we've now got. There's so much research in education in the last 20, 30 years. So many wonderful books have been written. Lots of things have been discovered. And I just think that if we are as an educational institution, we can't just keep ignoring that and just go, well, it's great that all that research is happening, but you know what? This has always worked for us, so we're just going to keep doing this. And I, I just think then we're saying to the students, we want you to go off and be critical thinkers and research and look into things. But we as a school, we're good. We, we've got it. We've got it all figured out. So for me, I think that was what drove me into it was the more I was reading throughout my doctorate, the more I was going, wow, there's so much of this stuff around motivation that would be really interesting 
for other teachers to know about and to apply to their classroom. And I think that would really drive things forward. And I also think having those conversations around teaching and learning and pedagogy, it just makes us a bit more, I suppose it encompasses our our professional identity and it makes us think a bit more about why we're there, what we're doing. And I think the more knowledge we have and the more content background we had, the better teachers we become, really. So that's that's what's driven me to it. And, and I'd like to, to throw that back at you, Darren, actually. What about you? Like, what motivated you to get into this? It's a very self-same thing you're talking about there, about the huge amount of evidence that we have, that it's almost our professional duty to, to go and use that. Exactly. And there's a there's a book that I read a while back called Leadership of Teacher Learning by, by Dylan William. And I think Dylan William is one of the most recognisable names in, in teacher research. And there's a paragraph in there that I share quite a lot. And it is that students in the classroom of the best teacher learning six months that takes the average teacher one year and takes, dare I say, the worst teacher two years to cover that same learning. Wow. And every child deserves to be in front of the best teacher. Yeah. And, and before I go on, I, I have to say, every teacher's trying their best. I've not met a teacher that doesn't come in and, and wants to do their best. 100%. But with all this evidence, there are some things that Dylan William also, also says that there are things that we can stop doing which are good so that we can do things which are great. And it kind of goes into what you were saying there, your focus on memory, retention, retrieval. That's a, a common one that comes up because some people say it's just common knowledge, but it's not. And like it might be, it might make sense, but is it common practice? Yes. Are you doing it because you just read it on TES or are you doing it because we unpicked the research into how it works? You know, the, the kind of thinking I've, I've been reading just now on multiple choice questions. How often do you design multiple choice questions really quickly and don't actually think about the distractors that really bring out the misconceptions of the students so you can really understand what they get, what they don't get and where the misconceptions are so you can iron them out. And I think the research can help us with that and really make us even better at our jobs. And I think as well, Darren, one thing kind of clear from our conversation is that we're two people who like this stuff. You know, we, we really enjoy reading around teaching and learning and motivation and, and how we can make th- things better. We, we enjoy this. So I think the important thing is to have someone like us in that role. You know, we not everyone is going to be as into reading around the education literature as we are. And that's fine. That's OK. Some people are more focused on their practice. Some people are more focused on their sports and their family. And all that is absolutely fine. But I think one of the motivators for me, at the very least, to get into this, and I think you may be the same, is that when I was reading about it, I was kind of like, this is quite cool. This is quite exciting. This is I want to share this with people. And I think when you have someone in a role that is genuinely quite into it, then that can bring a lot of the staff with you as well? No, I'd, I'd certainly agree the, the motivation. I've, I end all my emails with the, I'd love to talk teach and come and chat to me. Yeah, and lovely. more and more people over time is coming to have, like you mentioned, that informal conversations. And that informal conversations you have, you can drip feed things into and you can keep that conversation going. Or like I was at your session that, the other week, I tried this in my classroom. It really worked. Thank you so much for that. I'd like to try this. What have, What do you know? Or people are coming into my office and saying, I want to try this with my S2 class. Have you got any reading on that? And I just pick up my shelf and, and, and hand it away. And it's, it's great because people know that I have that enthusiasm. It'd be the same for yourself to know that you have that. So it makes you approachable. It makes the conversation around teaching and learning. We all love it when our job's going really, really well. Absolutely. So when the, when the students are learning, the students are engaged, they're motivated, they're having fun. These, these things can happen 
in a really well-organized, well-researched classroom. Yeah, I agree. And actually, just thinking about that, you're talking a bit more about practice now, Darren, and about things happening in the classroom. And I love that idea of teachers coming to you and you giving them a little book off the shelf and that, that like all that stuff is great. With the reading you've done and with the kind of research you've looked into and all the podcasts that you've had, the amazing guests you've had, what do you think as teachers we need to keep doing, do more of, or as kind of Dylan Williams says, you know, we should stop doing those good things so we can do great things, just as you said. Would you have any tips for the teachers listening to this? What are some of those great things we should do and what are the good things that we maybe need to to leave to the side? One of the biggest things in our profession, the burden we have is this around marking and feedback. Um, I think it's it's one of the most researched areas in teaching feedback and marking and far too often I, I talk to colleagues who tell me oh I was spending two hours marking last night or I was spending my weekend marking. Our jobs don't require us to spend Saturday marking. Mm-hmm, I agree. But we feel compelled to do that. But the research tells us some different things that that opportunity costs. That five minutes that I spent marking Liam's work, Liam might spend less than five seconds thinking about it. So the, the cost in terms of, of time, and I think they go back to Dylan William again, he did an exercise where he said something along the lines that in England, the cost of marking cost us about two billion pounds, you know, but yet outcomes haven't improved that dramatically. Yeah. So, but, but the research in the, in the books, they give us some really good ideas around about whole class feedback. You know, you see a lot of whole class feedback sheets going around, but I think it's important to tailor it to you in your context rather than take one off the shelf. But they are there, this quick way, and giving students the ownership. This is what I, this is put it, putting your whole class feedback up on the slide. This is the feedback I've got. You've got five minutes. Let's look at your own work, and you can then use class time to circulate in live mark. I had a really fascinating conversation with a chap called Adam Riches, who is an English teacher who told me on the podcast that he doesn't do a lot of marking because he does it all live marking in the class. And I find that very fascinating in terms of workload. But that's one of the biggest things that we could get better at, that marking and feedback. How do we make it more meaningful so that students can act on it in the classroom? So I think that's such an important point, like that marking and feedback. That It's really interesting what you just said about that live marking. So I read a, a book a few years back, Creating Cultures of Thinking by Ron Richards. And one of the things that he mentions in that basically he's got some case studies in it and there was one I think it's an Australian teacher who made a decision that for his oldest students like the ones who were preparing for the high stakes exams to go into university that instead of marking the stuff at home and giving it to them and then asking them to reflect and do feedback he decided that he would use his lunch before school after school and their free periods to mark it live with them now of course usually when we get to that last stage before they're entering university our classes have got a bit smaller so a typical A-level class or in my situation it's an IB diploma class would be maybe quite a bit smaller than when we have year 8 or 9 so it might be doable in your context and I decided I'd have a go at this I started it about three years ago and what I do now is like when I get my oldest students my age 17 18 year olds when they're doing a writing piece it's usually about five to six hundred words and rather than me take it home and mark it give them feedback that you absolutely rightly said Darren they may do nothing with despite my best intentions we arrange a time at the start of the year that works for both of us maybe it's a Monday lunchtime maybe it's a Tuesday before school maybe it's a Wednesday and we both have a free period at the same time they come to me with it and of course this isn't every week this might happen once every three weeks when they have a a written piece to do they come they sit down beside me and they've brought with them what I call a pro forma essentially like a self check of the things they should have done and they bring that with them and they say yes I reached this number of words I used these phrases I checked over my feedback I did this stuff and then I look at that first and then live with them sitting right beside me I read it like an examiner would I go through 
and I mark it and I, I show them the errors and I talk and say, why did you use that here? And would that sentence not have gone a lot better up here at the top? Now, of course, the double benefit for this, uh, for me as a language acquisition teacher is I'm doing it all in Spanish. So they're having a conversation with me for 10 to 15 minutes in Spanish every three weeks. And I am the one who does their oral exam. So they're getting more and more confident with me chatting to them in Spanish. And I found not only does it mean that I don't need to bring home any of this work, it's I never, ever have my A-level or IB diploma work at home ever because it's always corrected live with them. Now, does it strain on my time? Of course, those weeks when those students are coming in, I really have to look at my timetable and go, okay, I have like six or seven meetings this week with those year 12s and that they're 15 minutes each. I need to really think about my planning for this week. But really in the thinking about how I used to do it, I think it's so much more effective and they're really getting something from it and they're writing down there as I'm talking through it, they're writing down the points that they need to work on for the next time and that's what they will use to reflect before they come in the next time. So there's a real cyclical process. And I just think that that idea of just getting a bit smarter with the way we do our marking is so important. No, certainly. And if, and if I may, can I suggest a couple, one or two strategies that I've, that I've found for, for your bigger classes? Absolutely. A couple of, couple of good ones. I'll give you two. One really good one is this idea of show call. Um, Douglas Moore's show call and, and I didn't realise I was using this before I even read the book whereas I was I would pick up your jotter and put it under the visualiser and then would work in pairs or things to, to improve Liam's answer and I found that all the students here your class of 30 they're all given something and I'm circulating the class hunting for gold from the students oh, I heard Liam and Dan I heard to your conversation how would you improve Liam's answer I can annotate that and I might only be annotating one piece of work all the students are doing a little bit of thinking and I'm circulating to kind of gather their thoughts and then I'm picking out for the whole class discussion the gold that I heard the students say to really help improve Liam's work. But hopefully it's us getting the other students to go, oh, I never did that. I'm going to put that in. Yeah, I love that. The second thing, an idea I got from uh, the wonderful Carmel Bones. You can find Carmel on Twitter. She's, she's really excellent. She told me about feedback frames. So she A3 bits of see-through paper and then put a border around them to make it look like a frame and then they stick it over their peers work so you give each child child a pair of one and then put it over their partner's work because sometimes children don't like it when you write on their work so they put it over their, their child's work and you teach them how to kind of self-market or kind of give feedback based on spelling grammar or maybe a little bit of content and the students will write and kind of whiteboard pen where their partner needs to improve so the partner can look at the frame lift up the frame and then get writing and get changing and get annotating and that kind of active activates the students as learning resources for one another oh, that's cool also it's, it's a good bit of fun you know when your feedback's in the frame so it's it lifts that motivation and participation in your class as well so that's two ways to do it and when i'm teaching the mathematics there'll be bits where the students mark their own work then I'll, they'll swap the books with a partner, they mark their own work, and then there's a bit at the end where I mark and I go around. So then it's all being marked in class, but there's various stages which is tightly controlled of kind of you're marking, they're marking, but I'm marking the really important bit of the lesson. So um, yeah, yeah, it's, it's still there. So then it limits my marking outside of school. So there's just a couple of strategies that I think are, that I find are quite useful. Okay, so Liam, considering all this, what, what do, do we need to change and what practices in our teaching just need to go? Yeah, it's such a good question, right? Because we, we think about all these great things we want to do. But if we want to bring in these great new practices, the things we're reading about that come from an evidence base, something has to go, right? We can't just drop them in on top. There's too many things. So we've got to take something out. I think 
for me as a language teacher, but I do think this applies to essentially every classroom that I've ever been in, is that we can always provide a little bit more autonomy to our students and a little bit more scope for co-creativity with the teacher or some kinds of creative aspects. So, you know, my doctorate is all on motivation and there's just a huge amount out there about the importance of autonomy. And if we allow our students to have a little bit of choice, a little bit of ownership over what they're doing, a little bit of creativity, they're going to be so much more into it rather than us being that sage on the stage, the person standing up the front of the class with all the knowledge saying, you must learn this, this is important, learn it. And I really think that that is one thing that we need to change and we need to all look at our lesson plans, no matter what subject it is that we're doing, if we're teaching geography or humanities or art or whatever it is, to really look and say, how much autonomy am I allowing my students? Are they having any opportunities for creativity and self-expression or some kind of ownership over the learning? Now, in a language acquisition classroom, we do that through co-creation of stories. We build characters together. They'll give me the name of the character, the person, what they're like. But maybe in the context of a mathematics classroom, it might be instead of just learning about, I don't know, angles and, and, you know, how they work together and maybe saying to them, we use this all the time in architecture. And now I want you to design, you know, the perfect space in a school for 15 year olds. So I want you to design the room that is perfect for you and your friends. And you can be as creative as you want. It can be quite out there, but they have to use the mathematics to design that room. But now suddenly They've got some ownership over it. It's their ideas. They're using the mathematics to put it in rather than you saying, here is a graph with like a building and I want you to figure out the angles. That tiny little change of allowing them a little bit of creativity in there can be hugely motivating for students. And it can be actually, according to the research, you know, Ryan and Desi talk a lot about this in self-determination theory. It can be the catalyst for motivation. It can be that little spark that suddenly they go, whoa, mathematics is really interesting. Today I got to design my own games room and I put in all these video games and we had a football area and, and I needed to use all the mathematics that we've been he's been showing us over this last month. It was so more it was so exciting. And so for me I think that is something that just we need to bring in more autonomy for students. So I don't know, I'll throw that back at you, Darren. Is there anything that you would think that we need to get rid of and any practices that just need to go? I really like what you're saying there about this idea of creativity and motivation. I'm so interested in hearing your thoughts, given your, given your background and your PhD in, in, in that area. So thanks so much for, for sharing. I'm going to see it go away and think, see where I can build in some of that creativity <laughs> and ownership. In terms of practices that need to go, I think a lot, of, I think we need to reframe kind of what good teaching looks like. There's a, a lot of teachers that still think that lecturing is is good teaching and you kind of alluded to that. And I think when a lot of people read about direct instruction or explicit instruction, or, or a good friend of mine, Bruce Robertson, calls it direct interactive instruction. I think that's a better way to talk about teaching when you're initially learning something. Because instead of lecturing students for 10, 15 minutes where they're kind of, for, it's kind of about motivation, your motivation wanes. If you were, if I was to listen to myself for 10 minutes, I would probably lose motivation. But inter, but interspersing your, your, making that direct interactive instruction. So you're, you're presenting material, but then you're quickly going into turning talks and questionings and posing challenge and thinking and thought, thought experiments and, and so on. So you bring that learning alive you know, you kind of what you said there, you know, you've, I've taught you some, some words in Spanish. We've practiced those words in Spanish. We now know words, enough words to create a story. Let's create a story together and let's, let's read that story to each other. So you've maybe not covered as much ground as you would have, but you've covered a lot of meaningful ground. I, don't, I think that makes sense yeah. about reframing that. And of course, the, the 
the thing as I mentioned earlier around marking and feedback and report writing. Um, report writing is that one of those teaching practices that's always been, but how can we do it differently but do it better? Yeah. You know, rather than spending six hours writing reports and making so many grammatical errors and calling Liam she and and Sandra yeah. Sandra she <laughs> instead of they, you know, and making these errors, how can we kind of communicate better with our our parents and our students so it's more regular, rhythmical, but not as burdensome in terms of time because you find with a lot of things like marking, like reporting, that it takes a lot of time in one go and then it has minimal. So how do we how do we cut those kind of things out and also reframe what that really good high quality teaching looks like by using models like direct interactive instruction so that the stu- so that students are involved. I, I think that's such a good point, Darren. Like the, the reporting thing is really yeah, it's one of those practices that, you know, every school and every teacher goes up. Oh, we've always done it like this and we have to write reports and it's trying to get a way to think outside the box. While, of course, respecting that students who need to go to a new school or they need to go to university, they need some kind of report so that we're not going to take that away, of course. But is there a better way to do things? And, you know, that's that's maybe a conversation for another day. <laughs> but absolutely. <laughs> so, Darren, we're coming towards the end here, but I've got a couple of things I'd love to ask you about. So first and foremost, for those people who are listening, to the motivated classroom right now so that you could be listening to Becoming Educated or you could be listening to the motivated classroom right now that's why this is a collaboration but listeners of of the motivated classroom are typically teachers who are teaching language acquisition around the world now there are many other people who listen too but in general it is language teachers now on your podcast Aaron you've had such a wide array of people from all over education Is, is there anything you think us as language teachers people working in the language classroom that we could learn from any of your guests or your subject area is there anything you'd like to, you've got your opportunity now to talk to some language teachers. Is there anything you'd like to, to say to us, apart from what you've done already about the feedback and all those things? Of course, well, I think um, it's, you, you make an interesting point there about, we might come back to this idea of subject specificity. Um, I think my podcast is very general in teaching and I I might be wrong with this opinion, but I'm of the opinion that, that teaching's teaching regardless of what classroom you're in there are certain move strategies tactics that we can use and we can use in all the classrooms i think that's what makes the work of Douglas Mauve mm. so fascinating because it doesn't matter if it's an english classroom a language classroom a science classroom is that you can do certain moves and strategies and i think the theoretical aspects underpinning a lot of what my guests talk about i think one of my favorite ones was joe facer and teaching simplicity rules and making teaching simple i think that was a beautiful one to really break that down David Dido talking about making kids cleverer, you know, these kind of overarching principles of, of how we come to the conclusions of what good teaching could or should entail. Equally, I'd like to throw that back to you, at you a little bit, Liam, because obviously I don't know very much about language and the subject specificity bit is the part of my my role that we went, if we go back earlier on, is the bit that I want to really start drilling down on. Right. You know, a, a wee example is that I worked with our science department and I was able to lean on a couple of my colleagues to make all my examples in that science. But I was going through the the, the examples going, you tell me if that's correct, because I just don't know. And I think that's, yeah. that's a beautiful part of it because there's lots that we can learn from overarching themes but there's it, you mentioned it earlier it really drills down to it when it, you go into your subject and can deepen that but your turn now you're talking to the listeners of, of becoming educated <laughs> what can they learn from the motivated classroom and from language teachers so i think one of the big things i think you're absolutely right the subject specificity is so important but there are those overarching principles theories 
theoretical underpinnings that are so important. And as you said, good teaching is good teaching. And actually, there's a couple of things I'd like to mention. I think one of the first one is, I think for all of us listening to this who teach in a high school or in a secondary school, we can learn huge amounts from our primary colleagues. And that is genuinely, I think, one of the best PDs that you can do is if you work on a campus where there is a primary building, is to go and observe your primary colleagues for an hour, not for five minutes, because you'll need to see it over a bit of time, but the way that they can control and help these students and control is the wrong word. I think the way that they can inspire these really young kids through an amazing use of routines is just phenomenal. So when you watch the way that they use routines and sometimes we get to secondary school and go, oh, but the kids should know that. They should be able to do that. They should get on time. That's fine. We can say the word should as much as we want. Doesn't mean it's going to happen. So they, at the end of the day, these are still children. They're still 14. They're still 15. They're still learning. I was terrible at life when I was 14 or 15. <laughs> Whereas at least when you look at a primary classroom and the way that they use routines to make sure everyone's listening, everyone's on task, everyone is doing what they need to do. They take questions in the right way. So that would be the first thing I think for anybody is just go and have a look at a primary classroom and see what you can take out. And don't think to yourself, oh, that would never work with a 15 year old. Try it out. See, would that routine in the primary classroom work? And I have done that. And for me, my year eights and nine, so age 12, 13, 14, the routines from the primary school work incredibly well. They really, really are focused on it. They love the choral responses, all of those type things. Now, the other thing from a language classroom that I think maybe other people could take away from a language classroom that I think can be can be very, very beneficial is In a language acquisition classroom, I've mentioned this a little bit already about the autonomy, but we do have quite a bit of creative freedom because at the end of the day, as long as we are doing it in the language, as long whatever it is, if I'm talking about Day of the Dead in Mexico or if I'm talking about bullfighting in Spain or if I'm talking about cultures and traditions in Sri Lanka, we can do this through the language. So I think one of the things that people could learn from, from language acquisition is how we bring in creativity and how we allow the students to self-express and to try and think, how can I actually translate some of that self-expression into my geography class, into my maths class? What could I do to allow the students to bring in some of their own lives? And I think one of the first places to start is to just ask students a little bit more, how does that make you feel? And what does this look like in your culture? I think we have to stop assuming that the people in front of us are monoculture just because they are all Irish or they're all American. They're not really. If you go back one or two generations, there will be other cultural things going on there. So whether it's from a different part of Ireland or whether it's from in my Irish classroom, I've got a kid who came from London two generations ago. There will be some differences. And to try and get those cultural differences out, how do they do this in your culture? Do they use a different type of mathematics? And that gives the student, they feel then like, wow, I'm valued in here, not just for my brain and for what I can write down on the paper, But my background, my culture, the things I learned from my family, they actually have value in this room. And if students share a language that they speak at home, so you may have a couple of students in your class who speak Gujarati or they may speak Arabic and allow those students to speak in Arabic about different concepts. This is called translanguaging. So allowing students to say, okay, this is a difficult mathematical concept. We've come up with these theorems. Anyone who's an Arabic speaker uh, who speaks Arabic at home, why don't you go over here? If you speak Spanish at home, go over here. If you've got any other language, if you speak Polish at home, go and sit over here. And I want you to think about what this would look like in your language or just discuss it in your language. The first time you do this, 
the students will feel quite uncomfortable. They will say, oh God, this is a bit weird. You're asking me to speak Arabic in front of my friends. But if you highlight and show that this is a good thing, that look, you have more languages than us. And if you can do it in another language, you're providing them more hooks to put that memory and that learning onto. And this is, we see lots of research around translanguaging and it also values the student's culture. It values who they are. And it makes those other people in the class less fearful of what is different. By hearing them speak in Arabic, by hearing them speak in Gujarati, no longer is this this other weird thing that they don't know about. It's just part of the class. And hopefully that will get rid of some of the discrimination we sometimes have. So I think those are the things from a language classroom that I would love to see in more classrooms, a bit more translanguaging and a bit more creativity and, and autonomy around their own culture. I think that's a beautiful note on, on kind of the diversity that we now have. Exactly. In any way. It was interesting you mentioned that I've got a, a Romanian student. She's the only one with a different language in the class and she was really struggling and I asked her to describe it to me in her own language. Fantastic. And she was able to, she was, I'd had no idea what she said, but she was able to do it and then I just saw her face go, ah. <laughs> yeah, that's so wonderful. And But that moment as well, Darren, by you acknowledging that she has this other language, it makes her no longer fearful of speaking Romanian because what we see in the research is kids who have those different languages, they're almost afraid to put it out there because they're going to look different to everyone else. Mm -hmm. But if we acknowledge it and then we actually go and we say, look, guys, you know, not only is she doing these mathematics, but she's actually just done it in Romanian as well. Like, how cool is that? You know, that you're trying to show the kids that this is nothing to be afraid of. Having another language is actually something wonderful and, and getting that out there. I think that's that's one of the best things we can do. So, Darren, we've come to the end of our interview and I have one more little question that I would love to throw over to you just as a kind of a, of a, of a way to end. Why do you think more and more teachers are engaging with professional development now and listening to your podcast? Like, what has changed is there something that has changed, do you think? Or why are we seeing more and more teachers going, actually, I want to listen to an educational podcast. I want to get CPD. Do you, do you know if anything has, has changed in the last while that's making that happen? For the success of my podcast, I, I owe a lot to the success of that due to the pandemic, to be honest. Right. Um, because people had much more time and you saw it with Research Ed Home and different org online events. I, we did, I hosted one in Scotland called Scott Ed and this year had 4,000 people view it on, this, on the day, which is incredible. Wow. So there is a hunger, there's a thirst for things. And I think with the... With social media and Twitter can sometimes be a bit of a, of a feeding ground for negativity, but I think on the main it is a really positive experience. And I found, I've personally found a lot on social media and I'm finding more and more teachers say, ask them, well, where did you get that? Oh, I got it off this chap on Twitter or I got it off this, this, this girl was sharing this on Twitter and, or she shared a video and I wanted to try it myself. So this kind of, it's opened up the world, you know, teaching, teaching and, and collegiality is no longer in your department or in your school. It's now wider and much wider. There's a global classroom and I think that global classroom can only be a good thing with the use of mobile phones and, and people kind of walking their dogs and, and going out and going for walks during the pandemic. They were bringing me along to accompany them or bringing you along and, and different ones. And there's such a variety. It's almost overwhelming at times, but um, I'm finding a lot of people contacting me because they've not got time to read a book, mm. but they've got time to take me on their car journey, yeah. which I think is a, a really big thing. So it's offering a, a variety of people access to 
meaningful research, meaningful thinking and good company on their <laughs> on their dog walks and so on. What about you? Why do, why do you think there's more and more teachers engaging? I, I think I'd absolutely agree with you, Darren. I think at the end of the day, people want to feel competent. They want to feel good at what they're doing. And we see this in the, the motivation literature around, again, self-determination theory that, you know, people want to feel autonomous, they want to feel connected and they want to feel competent that they can do something. And so if you're listening to some of the research being distilled down into a 20 or 30 minute episode with a wonderful guest talking about that whole book and you can take out of that 20 minutes you've suddenly got a few classroom ideas you've got a bit more research you feel a little bit more competent about your work you feel a bit better about it you feel like I've got some fresh ideas and there is research out there actually that teachers are intrinsically motivated as in we are motivated by intrinsic motivators such as smiles on the faces students making progress happy environment more than we are extrinsic factors like the holidays and the money now of course we love the holidays right everybody we love having long holidays no we're not saying that that's not the case but when you look at the research around teachers more and more teachers would would prefer to have the same amount of money or just a little bit more, but to see their students make much more progress and be happier and everyone getting on well in the class and not having to deal with those behaviour issues. So we are actually driven by intrinsic motivators as a profession. And so I think that that's one of the things that really drives us on and we want to get better at things. And actually, I think this is, goes back to your previous question about what people can learn from the language classroom is I had someone on the podcast called Dr. Ed Stevens and he was talking about professional identity and he used this wonderful phrase about unbecoming, attacking our deeply held beliefs about the way teaching is because we all went through primary school, we all went through secondary school and if you're a teacher you probably went through university too. So you've gone through like 15, 20 years of education you think you're an expert in it and these deeply held beliefs need to be attacked and as he calls it unbecoming. So really I I thought that was so powerful and I think that that's why a lot of people are engaging with podcasts like ours is we are distilling some research for them, we're coming from an evidence base and they are attacking some of those deeply held beliefs but they also just want their students to progress. They just want things to be good in front of them. They just want everyone to be happy, to be learning. They don't really care about the results. They just want everyone to be learning and not have to spend 40 minutes trying to deal with behaviour. I think I think that's really what it comes down to. Certainly does. I totally, totally agree with that. Thank you so much, Liam. Thank you so much for, for having me on your podcast today. Um, just as you said, if you would mind entertaining me, I have a final three that I, that I use in Becoming Educated. So if you have a little bit of time for that I would love to to ask you absolutely go ahead so these are my quick fire questions the final three that I have in all my Become Educated podcast and the first one for you is what has been your best professional learning experience to date Wow. Now, you've asked me to do something quick fire. For anyone listening to the podcast, they'll know that me and uh, being concise is not very good. (laughs) Um, Best professional learning experience today. Wow, that is really difficult. I think one of the best experiences I ever had was when we had someone come from the United States called Grant Boulanger to my school and he showed me how to teach languages through co-creative storytelling to create with the students a story from scratch in the target language. And that has completely changed my practice. 
and it really led me on to the doctorate about wondering why did this work so well? It was because of all the autonomy and the creativity. And, and I think that really did dramatically change my practice. But there's so many other things I've attended. I attended a conference called Practical Pedagogies, I think it was called, um, pre-pandemic. It was in Cologne and um, Howell Williams presented there. He was a really, really funny, amazing presenter, very entertaining. And he talked about the putting the narrative back into teaching and to think that behind every piece of curriculum that we teach, we have people, we have places, we have problems and we have possibilities, the four P's. And he made me really think about it and go, wow, that's actually really powerful. Rather than teach this abstract thing, how can I somehow link the people and the places to what I'm teaching so that the students feel more of an emotional connection? So I think those two experiences were really important for me. Brilliant, thank you. And then what difference did that make in, in the classroom? You've, you've alluded to your career, but what about the classroom? So the one about teaching through storytelling, it really did make a big difference because I immediately was like, wow, these stories work incredibly well. They're so powerful. And we had another teacher called Beth Skelton who came and she's been on the podcast and she did the same thing. She talked to us about teaching through co-creative stories and teaching content through stories. So teaching, let's say, about the Second World War, but through French or German and how you could do that. And she did a demo with us that she taught us uh, Mandarin Chinese uh, over the space of a couple hours. And just in a couple hours, I could like read some Chinese and I could talk and say back this whole story in a couple of hours. It blew my mind. And so I that really did change my classroom practice. I got rid of textbooks. I no longer use a textbook. I use little novels instead. And the novels are what are the, the background of my curriculum. And I make it all to do with autonomy and making sure the students have a lot of co-creativity. So that it really did impact my classroom in a big way. Brilliant. Thank you so much. And my final question to you, Liam, is what do you love most about being a teacher? <laughs> what a great question. I, I think I love most about being a teacher is the contact with the kids, the contact with the students. I just they are the best parts of the job. You know, the writing the reports, the sending emails is kind of, for me, the stuff I have to do in order to get the time with the kids. And it's it's one of the reasons why I, I'm probably not someone who will end up being a principal or something like that because I actually enjoy the classroom experience too much. I really, really, really thrive on the students making me laugh. And when we do these co-created stories in the classroom, they genuinely really make me laugh. You know, I've had times when I'm kind of bent double laughing at the front of the class or I've got to turn around to the board and try and, you know, just get myself together because I'm laughing so much. So those are the moments for me that make teaching what it is. And I'll come home and speak to my partner and say, like, today, all oh, the kids said this and this. And I was just like, absolutely, you know, and Stitch is laughing. And it's such a great job when you have those moments. You're like, wow, this is I'm getting paid for this right now. You know that they're the times that I absolutely love. So there you go. No, Brian, thank you so, so much, Liam. Thank you so much for the opportunity to collaborate with you today. And I've really, really enjoyed the discussion. And absolutely likewise, Darren. This was a, a fantastic discussion. I loved it. And just great to, to speak to some other, another podcaster who understands <laughs> what it's like to be on our own in front of a microphone and talking to people. So that is wonderful. So a huge thank you to Darren for joining me on The Motivated Classroom today. Now it is The Motivated Classroom podcast, everyone. So we need to finish with our little word of Irish as we always do. And that word today was on cha, which means the house. And with that, I will say Guramila Mahagav Agaslanawalia. The Motivated Classroom podcast is an original production by Liam Printer. I'm at Liam Printer on Twitter and my YouTube channel is Liam Printer The Motivated Classroom. 
Full podcast notes with links to resources are available on my website, liamprinter.com. For more, find and follow the Motivated Classroom podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Graphics and music are provided by Paul Mahan. Intro clips are thanks to the wonderful multilingual staff at the International School of Lausanne.